Uh, Bergen kids, you guys can head out. If you're here, just want to say uh, welcome. Um, if you're visiting, a new brought by a friend, I um, just want you to understand what we're doing. Um, this is a worship service. You might have known that because you, hopefully you were coming to a church, but, um, or whatever this is, a warehouse. Um, but uh, it's really the people of God. So I just want to remind you, the church is not the aesthetics. The church is not the brick and mortar. The church are the people of God who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. And uh, he makes that clear in the New Testament. And so we, uh, where the church is, is really where God's people are. Um, and so this is just where we gather together, and we gather to worship Jesus Christ. We believe that he was fully God and came uh, in his full humanity as well, and that he um, lived a perfect, sinless life on our behalf uh, to appease and justify the wrath that was due us in our sin and take that upon himself instead of us having to bear it upon ourselves. And he pays the debt for our sin in our place, rises, and uh, enables reconciliation with God through solely through the death and work and resurrection of himself. And so um, that's how we're given new life. That's how we are made his children and brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And then uh, he gives us his Holy Spirit, which we believe is God as well. One God with three distinct persons and his Holy Spirit allows us now to walk according to how God has always designed and wired us to live for the glory of his name and good of our souls. So um, we're here to worship. So we worship by, by Singing. That's why we're actually singing songs. We don't just think it's a cool idea uh, just to get you in here and maybe rally you up before the sermon. Um, it's more just because God has given us singing uh, to most ultimately point to him. And so we want to sing about what he has done. That's why we were reminded this morning that, man, we come before the throne with no ounce of righteousness brought. We're, we're faultless because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Not because we come with any bit of achievements, but because Jesus Christ and his work alone makes us righteous, declares us righteous before a just and holy God. And so we sing remembering that. We sit under the preached word of God where we remember that Jesus is the center of the scriptures. So no matter what book we're in, we're hoping that your eyes and hearts and minds will be drawn to uh, the good, glorious work of Jesus Christ. And then we also worship Jesus by uh, giving. We love to be generous because God was most generous in giving us his son and we give him the silver boxes on the back wall. We don't pass a plate. Uh, and if you're wondering, do I want your money? Uh, no, not if you're visiting or new or checking this out. And if you're a regular tender, remember, we know that we give as uh, a glad heart uh, because God has been generous, not because we feel like we have to. So uh, we're thankful. And then we finally worship Jesus by observing the table, uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, depending on how you were brought up. And we see it not as something that gifts you righteousness or adds to salvation or in some way increases credit to God on your behalf, but a gift that Jesus gave so you be nourished and reminded of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. So um, with all of that said, man, we're going to roll into Habakkuk chapter one. Uh, we're going to be in Habakkuk for a couple of weeks. We love to take books of the Bible and walk through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so you can see the, the whole counsel of what God wants to say. Helps you be a good Bible studier, helps you to learn what God is really saying in his word instead of just uh, isolating certain texts. And so uh, Habakkuk, is a book we learned last week as we got going is, is, is a very difficult book. It's a very weighty book, uh, but it's a very good book um, because he shows us the honesty of the human heart and how God responds to the honesty that is in the human heart. And we may, may not always understand his ways, but we can trust his ways. And so uh, Habakkuk is kind of helping us unearth and understand how do we live in evil times? How do we understand God's rule and reign as we walk through suffering and hardship where it seems like he's idle, where it seems like he's silent? Um, really useful and relevant to us as God's people, and really, I would argue, to anyone uh, who exists. And so um, here we are. At this point in the book, here, here's what's been happening. We talked last week mostly about the historical setup, how um, God had always said he was going to bring salvation out of a people, out of a nation, um, to show that, there, that, that he was their God, that he was the one true God. That was Israel. 
And then what happened was they fell into rebellion and sin, and ultimately uh, they get into this place where they had good years of worshiping and, and repenting and turning to God and following God, and then they had, um, with this King Josiah, now what's happened is there is this uh, awful season they've been in where they have plummeted spiritually, um, governmentally, there are things happening around them, they have uh, armies that are flanking and, and about to overtake them, there's fear, there's frustration, there's perplexion, uh, much like um, we find ourselves in today, and so um, he basically cries out to God and says, God, where are you? He, he's a prophet. He's one who was sent by God to speak on behalf of God and say the things of God. And he, he's given this vision, this oracle, which is really a burden. And he's saying, hey, I, it seems like you're idle. seems like you don't care. seems like you're non-existent. How do I understand this? Um, and what we're going to see today is that God actually responds and answers him. Um, so after his rant, God responds. So can I just encourage you to just stop for just a minute and just glory in the fact that God hears us? <laughs> that not only does he hear us, that, that he responds to us? I mean, this isn't a guy that's going, God, you're awesome. God, I love you. God, you're so good. Man, you're, or you're ordering everything just right. He's going, God, I'm frustrated. Where are you? You seem idle. I'm perplexed. I feel abandoned. And God answers him. Amen. That, that's, a, that's a good, kind God, that God not only hears his people, but he answers them. And so we learned last week that we battle our frustrations with God by bringing them to God, not running from God, that we grow in intimacy with God by speaking honestly with God, that we trust divine revelation over our human observation, and finally, that hearts that change lead to hands that follow. And here we're going to see that God responds. So here's what God says. Here's uh, what God says as he responds to him, verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. <laughs> he, classic God. Um, he doesn't always give you an answer. He gives you a response. Right? You ever had that? Where, where you're like, okay, God, I'm asking this, and will you fix these people over here? He's like, well, let's talk about you. Don't change the subject. Right? Don't, don't, don't start talking about me. He said, no, no, let's, let's address these issues. God is, God is giving him this thing, and he says, hey, I'm going to do something in your midst that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. It's going to astound you. Now, now, here's the truth. Most of us wish God would tell us what he's doing, right? Um, but how many of us, amen, if God told you what was coming in your future, and you knew what that thing was, you never would have even made it there. Right? He's going, no, 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 no. Most of you can't even handle that. Man, I could, I could tell you what's coming like three, four months from now, suffering, plight, pain, difficulty. But if I told you, you might not even make it there. And we're so, man, God, tell me now. Give me the future. And he's going, man, I really love you, and I just don't think you want that. I just don't think you want to know what's coming. Because you won't even have the grace to sustain. And how many of us, when we're then brought and found, find ourselves in that part, that place of pain, plight, and difficulty, God sustains us. And he teaches us how to walk with him and lean into him. And so he's sitting here going, man, I, I could tell you everything. I could give you every detail, but you couldn't even handle it. You wouldn't be able to even take it all in. In verse 6, he tells him what he is doing. He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Okay. If you're reading this, all right, just stop there. And Habakkuk says, 
God, where are you? There's violence and you seem silent. There's all this injustice. There's all this oppression. There's all of these things happening. You sit like you're, it seems like you're idly standing by. Where's your salvation? You said you were gonna bring salvation out of the people of Israel. It seems like you're doing nothing. And, and as he's sitting here listening, God comes and goes, oh, I'm doing something. Uh, you know that, that bitter, per, morally perverse nation? Yeah, they're gonna come in and sweep your country and wreak judgment on Judah. And you're not even gonna understand what I'm doing. Habakkuk's thinking, wait, wait, no, 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 you didn't, you didn't give a solution to my problem. You're compounding my problem. I said for you to deliver me from injustice and violence, and you're telling me you're going to deliver us by bringing more violence and more injustice. That doesn't seem like an answer. That doesn't seem like what I want, right? If we're authentic and honest, Habakkuk's going, wait, that's not a solution to my problem. That's another problem. And then he just describes here, these bullies that he's going to use to bring about judgment and answer Habakkuk, who marched through the breadth of the earth. They seize dwellings not their own. Man, they, these are wicked, wicked people. They come in and they kill the dads and enslave the sons and abuse the daughters and sell the mothers. Horrific. They're going to just seize Dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity goes forth from themselves. They don't even have a law to abide by. The law is unto themselves. They do whatever they want. They don't care about the law. They don't care about human dignity. Nothing restrains their evil. Nothing restrains what they do. Their horses are swifter than leopards. You, you can't get away from them. You think your leopards are fast? Check out their horses. There's going to be nowhere to run from them. More fierce than evening wolves. You know what evening wolves do? They, they at night are most hungry. They circle their prey that they want to devour and eat. They're militaristic. They're organized. Right? Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swift to devour. They come for violence. Their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They collect people like slaves. They just collect people. No thought for human dignity. No thought for human life. They do whatever their wicked hearts desire to do because they worship themselves. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. In ancient times, the wealthier you were, the higher you lived. Kings would live on these high mountains, right? And they would build fortified cities around them. And what they would do is they could look down over the entire landscape. And so that if anyone came towards them, they could just rule and reign and have an easy way to, de, uh, to, to beat their enemies. And they would just laugh at, on, as, at opposing armies. They can't beat us. We're up high. If you had lower ground, you never had a shot at getting higher. He's giving all this imagery. They'll laugh. No one can handle them. Their own might is their God. Who do you worship? I worship me. I worship my power, my strength, and my confidence. That's what he's saying. Now, at this point, if we just close it up right, uh, people do a number of things. <laughs> number one, the first thought is, um, let's just never teach through books of the Bible, right, verse by verse. Then we get in a cul-de-sac we can't get out of. Okay, well, I don't know what God's doing, so I'll try to explain away this and say, I don't know, maybe we'll tweak God and change God, give him a, give him a marketing manager, right? That's the other thing that we like to do is, okay, well, that can't be who he is, right? I mean, he's probably just like us, figuring it out as he goes. Uh, this isn't really his answer. This isn't really what he wants. No, it is what he wants. It is what it says. And he just lays this out here. And so we either choose not to look at it and deal with hard text, or we say, let's change God, tweak God, adjust God to fit who we want God to be. 
right? And so often, we'll just we'll get in the marketing managers and listen, we do not, brothers and sisters, need to seek to change or tweak or change God. We need to seek to understand God and therefore trust God as he is. So, so, so our goal is not to come under the scriptures and us become the judge. It's to sit under the scriptures and let God be the judge and say, if this is who I am, if this is how whole I am, and this is who you are, this is how you might respond, this is how you might find ways to trust me, understand my character and nature so that I might sustain you in your darkest hour. We don't want to alter God and change God. That will actually bring about more fear and more strife and more contention. We want to seek to understand who God is so we can trust fully who he is and obey who he is and what he has done. This is why in the next chapter you're going to see it say, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? These are the types of people that live under this God, the people that live by faith. See, faith is trusting God when you don't understand God. To say that God should make sense makes no sense. Like our minds are so separated. I mean, his vastness, his infinite perfections, to even, to even come under him and say, yeah, I can figure you out. I, I can dictate what revelation, divine revelation is to say is futile. It's silly. Because God, who created us, tells us what it should be, what things should look like, how things should go. So faith is not getting what we want, but accepting what God wants. That's what true faith is. Um, and the reason I say this is because as you read texts like this, you've got to be rooted somewhere strong. There is a false teaching in the church, right, that, that's being taught in many places. And, and it basically teaches that faith is kind of this idea where um, God is a genie and your faith is the hand that rubs the bottle and gets what it wants. Right, so, so, so if I want this thing, man, I just, I rub the genie and I have enough faith and then I get what I want. No, that all of a sudden makes you God and so God exists for you to meet your demands so now you can tell him what you need. No, that's not faith. <laughs> that is not faith sitting under God telling God what he should do and God what he should give. No, you want something and God has it. If I have enough faith, God is not your way of getting God to do what you want. Jesus taught us this, man, this is my angst, this is my frustration, God, can you take this cup from me, but ultimately what you want, ultimately thy will be done, not mine, ultimately yours. I can still be vulnerable, I can still be transparent, I can still share my frustrations, but ultimately faith is trusting God when we do not understand God. Because of the heart behind God, because you're not just having faith in a God, you're having faith in a faithful God. You're having faith in a good God. You're having a, a faith in a God who, is, who does all things for his ultimate good and our joy. So your faith is somewhere. It's not blind. This is why I want to just stop for a minute. And I know this, this, this morning might, might, might be weighty, might be heavy, might, might land in some ways that bother you, but, but ask God for help because I want to stop and just ask the question um, just for a minute. What is your understanding of becoming a Christian? I want you to really consider that. What is your understanding? And maybe you can, depending on your age or background, just, just lead up to now. What is your understanding of becoming a Christian? Because churches fill the rooms with false promises. Right? If you take Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. If you take Jesus, he'll give you more health and wealth. If you take Jesus, then he'll fix this solution. So everybody shows up going, man, well, I'll take Jesus. I'll take Jesus if he does this, if he does this, if he does this, instead of the biblical gospel that says we take Jesus even if he does none of those things. Even though we pick up our cross and die to ourselves and follow him. 
And so here, let me, let me ask you, what is your understanding of becoming a Christian? Because I find for many of us, here, here's what it's, how it seems to play out. And whether we realize it or not, it's like we are driving our car and we're in control of life. And we have our desires and our dreams and we're headed our directions. And all of a sudden you hear about Jesus and maybe it's through a neighbor, maybe it's through a friend, maybe it's through a sermon, maybe it's through a podcast, maybe it's through gathering with the the people of God. You hear about this Jesus, he was fully God, he forgives sin, he offers reconciliation with God and and you go, yeah, I I think I want that. I want Jesus, I want that Jesus. So, So here's what we do, okay, cool. Hey Jesus, you pop your trunk, pop in, right? Close the trunk, okay, hey, stick around in case I need anything. All right, and you're still in control, you're still in authority, you, you function as your own God still, and you just keep going. And then every time you hit an issue, right, you're just yelling at Jesus. Like, you got a jack in the back, I got a flat tire. Don't you care about my needs? I mean, where are you, right? Some of you are like, well, well I'm not that bad. No, what we, want, we call him Lord, what we really want is slave. What we really want is serve me, meet my needs, do what I want. Some of you are going, well, I'm not that bad. I bring him in the passenger seat. Right? I just open the side door. I don't put him in the trunk. Put him in the side door. And we drive around, ask for his advice. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Okay, cool. Yeah, keep your mouth shut there. I'll do that. Oh, that's a good idea. So you kind of pick and choose what you want to hear from him and what you want to believe and what you want to submit to. Friends, you know what we should do? We should park the car, get out of the car, tell him to get in the front seat, get in the fetal position in the trunk and shut it. That's what we should do, right? You're going, no, 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 no way. No way. You're letting me have a relationship with you, the all-knowing, omnipotent one who knows all things, who created all things. Man, I don't have a clue how to run my life. I don't have a clue how things operate. I don't have a clue about the depths of my sin. Man, I need, I need you to tell me where to go. I need you to call the shots. I need you to drive. Hey, I'll be in the trunk. If you need anything from me, I'll be there. But man, I trust you. I'm submitted to you. I'm following you. I'll follow your ways, even if it's hard. Man, I know I'm safer in this trunk, in the fetal position, in pitch black, than me still trying to take control of my life. And that's what it means to become a Christian. That, that's the imagery there. I mean, that, that's, what, that's where Habakkuk has to be in this place is in the trunk, not in the driver's seat. Going, no, no, I, I, I don't know how you're going to fulfill this. I don't know what you're doing, but man, I know I can trust you, so let me get out of the way. Let me submit to you. Let me sit under you. See, maybe, maybe some of you attend church at Bergen because you think this will help your self-image. And, and if that's you, you're missing it. You're totally missing it. This isn't about you finding some cute teachings that will help you this week. This is about an intense power not inside of you, outside of you, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that actually comes and directs you and guides you and fuels you. This is not, this is not oh, I'm going to learn some things to add to my life. No, it's Jesus becomes your life. And we follow him, submit to him gladly because there's no other place it would be for us. Like Peter last week, man, where else am I going to go? You have the keys to eternal life. Where else could I possibly run to? Who else could I possibly submit to? Who else could I possibly have other than this Jesus? See, so if you, can, if you come into the presence of God thinking this will, without a humble sense of your deep need for God, you actually don't have a biblical self-image. Now, we know this. I mean, it's all about self-image today, right? <laughs> head to the bookstore, head to the supermarket, and look in the aisle to check out. Ten ways to improve your self-image. Ten ways to boost you. And usually most, sci- 
psychology and psychological and emotional problems will be explained away to you by improving your self-image. Do you know what I think is more true? That most people have too high a self-image. Most people don't see their deep need for God. They do not see their deep need to get out of the way, and they don't see their clear idolatry and belittlement of his name and need to be coming under him in a safe place, trusting him and abiding in him, but going out from under him and choosing that their way is the best way, like Genesis 3 in the garden. So we don't see ourselves in need of everything from God. So instead of having this built, this healthy biblical self-image, we have a Laodicean self-image that says, well, no, I'm pretty good. I got some money in the bank. My grass is fairly green. Neighbors don't hate me. Kids are generally okay. They're not killing themselves, so we're good. The Scriptures lay before something very, very different. See, the reason I say that is because this is what has happened to God's people, where you find them in Habakkuk. I mean, God's people, Israel, man, they totally took advantage of, presumed upon his providing and his protection. They got so used to it, they actually turned into these trust fund spoiled brats where where their daddy shows up and always pays the tab. And as soon as he doesn't pay the tab, where where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you caring for us? And so here God is actually intervening here. God God, God goes, wait a minute, I'm sending my prophets to tell you how to walk in the ways of me, how to stay close to me, how to stay protected, and I'm telling you what not to do so you might not fall into condemnation, you might not fall into destruction and death and turmoil. And you know what they did? They go, okay, well, we'll either ignore them and sometimes we'll murder them. That's the Old Testament. And so God says then maybe I'll remove my hand of protection for a bit. Then maybe I'll bring about some pain to spare you eternal pain. Maybe you don't realize the seriousness of your sin and rebellion that leads to death. So maybe I'll lift my hand and bring in this hasty, perverse nation so that you might return to me because I would love to protect you, love to serve and provide and cover you. But if I reward you for your rebellion, how unloving of a father am I? Now, some of us will hear this and and we'll sit over God in judgment and say, well, if God is all loving, if God is all good, if God is all powerful, then he should just do away with all suffering. It's counterintuitive to who he is. I want to give you just four things. Uh, Number one, he will. Jesus will come back. He will do away with it all. Number two, though, we have a silly, inconsistent understanding of love. And this isn't just you and I. This is culture. So culture bleeds into our hearts and minds about this and our emotions about this. We have a silly, inconsistent understanding of love. We think that we love people. We think that we love God. And so we think that's the way God should love us. But, but the truth is we don't love love. We love the idea of love. We love the emotion without sacrifice. Right? I mean, I mean culture doesn't love love. They love the idea of love. And so here, what we're seeing here is even what we're confronted with is, is uh, love doesn't have as much to do with us as it does what it can give to us and do for us. So, so here's what happens is um, we say we love things until they, until they don't fit in our circumstances, right? This is why the divorce rate's so high. So, so man, I, I love my spouse, but as soon as your spouse stops giving you what you want, you're out. I fell out of love. Well, that's weird. 
Because love endures. Love isn't simply a motive. Love is something that bears with and keeps and sticks alongside. So it's really what we're saying is, no, we just love things until they stop giving us what we want. Um, That's not love, brothers and sisters. That's the New York Giants, right? Man, I loved the Giants three years ago. Hated them last year, right? Love my house to all the plumbing issues. Now I hate my house. That's a love-hate, love-hate. I mean, we have no clue what we love. We don't understand love. And so here's what I want to lay before you is um, if you dig around and you start talking about God's wrath, you start talking about God's judgment, um, I find there is the quick, that is the quickest way to make the secular mind furious and the Christian mind nervous. Just start talking about him being just and a judge. Right? The secular mind gets furious, even though which, it's so insane because we love just judges. We love Judge Judy. We love these shows where people get justice. We're all sitting on our TV going, yeah, the judge is executing justice. But we never want to talk about justice and loving it when God is talked about as just. Well, no, no, he can't be. So you don't really understand love. You don't really understand the things that we are discussing. So we say loving can't possibly be wrathful. Loving can't possibly be something that judges. Those things are counterintuitive. I would argue the opposite, that if you're truly loving, there will be aggression in your heart toward the things that you hate and to what is sacred is violated. Right? If you love your spouse and he or she is violated in any way, there is right, holy aggression because you love them. What we reveal in our hearts is we don't really love them when we say, oh, it's fine, I'll, I don't really care about that. That doesn't really bother me. When what's sacred is violated and we have no response to that, we're actually not loving. <laughs> By definition. So if you love something, there will be that wrath. There will be that aggression. We don't truly love when we don't have wrath because we don't care. And God is a God that deeply loves his name and renown. He deeply loves his holiness. He deeply loves seeing his people walk in the light and walking with him and protected by him. He deeply loves seeing people understand the way to salvation and the seriousness of sin. And because he loves that, because he has love for you and I, he might, as a good, loving father, bring about and inflict harm and pain to spare us from eternal pain and to wake us up because he loves us and doesn't want to reward us for that rebellion. You know, many people, um, when they say God, um, what people mean when they say that if God is loving, powerful, and good, uh, that he should spare us from all suffering, what they mean is they see God as like, I don't know, some fictional character like Tinkerbell some fairy who just runs around floating, dropping pixie dust on people. And that's his way of being loving. Man, you ever you see the pictures of God in the scriptures? He is ferocious. He is awesome. He is holy. He is huge. And the fact that he would take us feeble sinners and call us his own and forgive our sin and pay our debt and declare us righteous, that should wake us up. That should encourage us and excite us, should it not? And so this is why if you do a word study on wrath, this is what's happening here in the book of Habakkuk. If you do a word study on wrath, and I've said this before, you'll see it bend out in two ways, passive and active. 
Now listen, most people always tell me when I sit down and talk with them, whether it's a, a skeptic at the coffee shop or if it's somebody within the church that we're gathering and, and we're discussing, most will say, okay, well, man, the scariest is the active wrath of God. You know, Old Testament stuff, Nebuchadnezzar turning into like an animal and uh, he was just blowing stuff up and fire from heaven, destroying cities. And I'd argue that passive is much more frightening. Passive is Romans 1 where, God, I don't believe you're good. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to follow your ways. And God just says, okay, fine, do what you want. And he never stops you. He never steps in. And he lets you run all the way to your damnation in your futility and thinking. That's far more frightening to me. Every so often, is it not good for God to wake us up? I mean, is it not gracious and kind for him to say, hey, this is, this is serious. Hey, you're wandering here. Hey, this is, you're, you're going into dangerous territory. Man, you're about to kill yourself, burn yourself, destroy yourself. I mean, is it not loving of God to step in as any loving dad and say, watch out for this. Let me show you how serious this is. So brothers and sisters, every now and then it is kindness to get woken up by God. It is loving. It is good. Now, what is God doing? God is doing like any good surgeon, doctor, paramedic. He's using the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as the scalpel to cut out the cancer that is the rebellion in God's people, to protect them and inflict some of this harm, to protect them from eternal harm and pain. Um, When I did physical therapy for my knees, Uh, I had both my knees reconstructed in high school. And man, physical therapy was awful. My knees hurt, a lot of pain. But it prevented a lifetime of pain. I can walk around, I can go snowboarding, I can run with my son. But man, those grueling months of of just pain, trying to stretch and tweak, and man, they 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 were good doctors. They were good surgeons. They were grateful because they saw the long view, not the short view. They didn't care about just keeping me comfortable, never taking me into difficult territory. This is what God is doing here. I mean, if you have children, right, um, you know why they're screaming? <laughs> if you have young children. Well, old children scream too, but, but young children, right? If you got young children, you, you know why they're screaming? Because you're taking something from them or you're doing something to them that they don't understand, Right? I mean, this is Jackson. I mean, he wants that. No, you don't understand. That, that is so much sugar in it. You're already crazy and nuts. You're already redlined from the moment you wake up till the moment you go down. If you're in here, I know you saw him. Who's that crazy? Oh, that's a pastor's son. Okay, I know. That's Jackson. He's nuts. He has energy. He has testosterone. He's a male, alpha male. Okay, so, so he, he has all that. But listen, when I remove that, he just starts screaming. Now, now, here's what's amazing. This is, this is God and us. I sit down, open up Habakkuk 1, and go, okay, buddy, hold on, sit down. Let me teach you. Let me help you understand the basics of nutrition. He doesn't get that. He doesn't understand that. Buddy, sometimes you just have to trust my hand. Sometimes you just have to trust what I'm doing. I want to save you from filling yourself with sugar and, and ultimately possibly killing yourself. I want you to be healthy. I want your body to sustain itself. But you can't understand all of this. And even though you can't understand possibly the many things that I do, this could save your life, Jackson. This could protect you. This is where you have to understand something here in Habakkuk. There's something Habakkuk could not see. 
And this is so often with pain, plight, difficulty in our lives. There's something that we cannot see where God is working his sovereign ways and wills, and we just have to totally submit to what he is doing. Um, if you follow history briefly, if the Jews are not brought into this exile and scattered through this persecution, through the Chaldeans coming in, the Babylonians coming in, there would not have been these synagogues in all these cities. Because here's what happens. Not everybody came back to rebuild the temple and the city. Most stayed in the dispersion. If you follow historically, what happens is in these synagogues that became dispersed in all these cities, there are Jews and Gentiles who became God-fearers, became curious about the God of Israel, curious about the word of God. And if you follow, you can see this all the way through into the book of Acts, who starts multiplying applying the church. It's not these pagans getting saved or these Jews that love the Lord. It's these God-fearing Gentiles that the gospel starts spreading because of the dispersion and bringing about into exile back in Habakkuk's day. The gospel's going forth. People are getting saved. That wouldn't have happened if God had not brought in the Chaldeans. You can see this in China, 1949, right, when I think it's Mao comes in, communist leader, There were a couple hundred years of Western Christian missionaries that were going in trying to bring the gospel to China, and what happens? He kicks out every Western missionary, and all of us are panicking, going, where is God? Has he abandoned China? You know what that happened? It made China make Christianity indigenous to them, and it started becoming the rapidly fastest-growing belief in China. So what seemed like withdrawal from God, idleness from God, was the furthering spread of the glory of his name. And we do not understand his ways. We do not understand what he's doing all the time. But we can totally trust what he's doing, that he brings the worst possible situations and makes it the ultimate good. And you can see this over and over through history. It's amazing. It was not the death of a missionary movement. It was the further spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ which could in turn honestly change history. You have 300 million Christian, Chinese Christians in the next 100 years could change history. If God had not taken them out and let it grow indigenous, God is giving Habakkuk a vision into the future and he wants us to trust him. Listen, God is going to deal with his children here. God is going to deal with the nation. God is going to deal with the Babylonians. No one, because ultimately this God that raised up the Babylonians is going to just ultimately wipe them out. Like he's in full authority over this thing and he goes, nothing's gonna get away from me, Habakkuk. Everything will be dealt with perfectly and effectively, just trust me. Reminds me of this beautiful hymn by a man in the late 1700s. I wanna read it to you, you can see it on the screen. I feel like it sums up so much of this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-fading skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. O fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings over your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face his purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain God is his own interpreter 
and he will make it plain. Lastly, if you care about suffering, you should care about the worst suffering, suffering of all, and that is eternal suffering. If you really claim to say, I care about suffering, God ridding suffering, injustice, evil, violence, this nation is ridding headlong into eternal hell and harm, and he cuts this cancerous rebellion out of his people to spare them from eternal harm. See, see, when he says here, what does God mean when he says, I'm doing something in your day that you will not believe? Out there in the nations, I'm going to bring about salvation out of judgment, justice out of injustice, salvation out of violence. I know you don't understand it, but that's what I'm doing. What is he saying? You can go to Acts 13, and you see Paul preaching about Jesus. Something fascinating here. He says this in verse 37. But he, this is Jesus, who God raised up and did not see corruption, let it be known that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then he adds this. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. <laughs> you know what Habakkuk's doing? Must be inspired. You know what Habakkuk's doing? Paul looks at Habakkuk 1 where God says, I'm going to do something you'll never believe, Habakkuk. I'm going to bring salvation out of judgment. I'm going to bring light into darkness. I'm going to bring lack of violence out of violence. I'm going to bring justice through injustice. You know who's going to do that? Jesus. Habakkuk couldn't see that. Jesus is going to do this. You're going, wait, I thought he was talking about the Babylonians. Well, yes, he is talking about the Babylonians, but what Paul is revealing in this text here is he's saying this principle that he said to Habakkuk that light would come out of darkness, salvation out of injustice, redemption out of evil and suffering finds its ultimate and supreme expression in Jesus Christ. This is amazing. I mean, this is, this is what, you want to know why? Because when God came into human history and entered it in the incarnate son of God, he went to the cross. He didn't come in strength. He came in weakness. He didn't come in triumph. He experienced injustice. He experienced profound evil. Now, why does this matter? Because he's holy. He's holy. I mean, this is how it's all answered. Habakkuk saying, man, I don't understand why you put up with injustice and violence. I don't understand why you're not bringing salvation that you promised out. And I don't understand because they'll say next week, you're everlasting, everlasting. You're holy. And Paul is answering for us in Acts 13. This is precisely why he answers it in Jesus Christ. Because he's holy. Because he can't just forgive sin. He has to do something. He has to shield it. He has wrath to be poured out. He has to appease it. He has to declare people righteous by some other form other than them doing it themselves. I mean, justice can't just come out of injustice just through man's will. It's got to be done to somebody else so that it can be fully fortified and finished. Oh, man. And he's showing, Paul's showing us this window even that Jesus is this ultimate example of bringing salvation out of judgment, redemption out of evil and suffering. All the people were standing in front of the crucifixion. You know what they were saying? I don't understand how God can bring good out of this. And he says, I am bringing about greatest good out of the worst evil. Listen, as we look at our life and our evil times and go, I don't understand what God could possibly be doing here. Paul says, point your eyes to Calvary. Point your eyes to the sovereign son of God who laid down his life because he's the ultimate Habakkuk. He is the only reason justice can be brought out of injustice. 
and goodness out of suffering. Because this is the God who wrestled in the garden with God the Father and said, man, is there any way out of this yet? Your will. He did it perfectly. And when he goes to the cross, he says, where are you, God? And guess what? God was actually gone. And here's why this matters. Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel like God has left you? And I'm talking to the Christian. You have objective evidence that he has not abandoned you because he fully was abandoned and forsaken on the cross for you. God was actually gone. So in those moments where you feel like God is not there, you know your feeling is wrong. You know that he actually is fully there. And your objective evidence is looking to Calvary, where he took your abandonment fully for you so that he would always be near and say you can trust me. And if you look at that Jesus Christ who bore all that weight, saw him faithful, stuck it out for you in evil times, even as they came upon them, then you can say, I know God is at work somehow. I know I can trust him. And now I can be faithful to him and enjoy him because he did what I could not do. Charles Spurgeon said this about suffering. The cross is so that we might trust in God's heart even when you can never trace his hand. In the darkest hours of our souls, friends, we have something Job never saw. We have something Habakkuk didn't fully see or know. Christ crucified, so we trust in the God of the cross, the God of suffering. Listen, the Lord's Supper, we're going to take the supper. It's our way of remembering. What do you need to remember today, those of you who are in Christ? What do you need to see in the cross of Christ that will nourish you today? Some of you feel like you're in seasons where you do not hear from him. You feel like he's left you. You feel like he's left you in wanderings. And now you have objective evidence to see that he has not. And might you be reminded by it through taking the supper? Some of you need to be reminded of the seriousness of your rebellion and wanderings from God. Not wanderings innocently. I mean the unjust ways saying God is not good. I will not follow what he says. I do not trust him. God might be waking you up through the kindness and providence of Habakkuk this morning to call you to himself. Might you repent of your sin and turn to his name for the good of your soul and glory of his faith. Let's ask God for help. Father, thank you that you're a God that restores what's broken. Thank you that you're a God that cares about suffering, that you do not sit idly by, that you have screamed out to all of creation through the work and crucifixion and resurrection of your son. God, thank you that for those of us who are Christians, we have objective evidence, divine revelation given to believe and trust in your heart, even when we cannot trace your hand. God, would you comfort those who need comfort this morning? Would you nourish those who need nourishment this morning in that? And Father, those who do not see their sin is serious and your holiness is holy and your justice is good, would you refine that and bring them to a healthy, robust place of sitting under you in safety, in salvation, in protection? God, thank you for what you've done. Help us. These are complex things. Our emotions are complex. Our minds are complex. But God, would you make it plain to us? Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.